Planning to start a farm? Jonathan gives us advice for getting started. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Arkansas Organic Chronicles podcast, where we discuss anything, everything, and all things related to certified organic food right here in Arkansas. I'm Joe Hannon, production instructor at Calf Farm School. With me today is Jonathan MacArthur, field instructor at the Calf Farm School as well. Welcome, Jonathan, to the podcast. Thanks, Joe. How's it going today, Jonathan? Wonderful. Okay, to plan about a 60 degree day in December. 60 degrees in December does not suck. <laughs> It doesn't. Well, let's uh, set the stage here a little bit for our listeners. So it's winter. It's December 5th that we're recording. This is the time of year where people start thinking about, are they going to do a little gardening next year? Are they thinking about maybe doing a little bit of farming coming up in the next year or two? Yeah, so I wanted to have a little short mini-series to take a look at some best practices for starting a small-scale vegetable farm using certified organic practices. So, Jonathan, you've started several small-scale farms here in the Northwest Arkansas area, so I thought you'd be a perfect fit for leading us on this conversation journey over the next two, three, four episodes, whatever it ends up being. I guess before we get diving into the content too much, maybe you can take a little time to tell us a little bit about who you are and how did you find yourself at the calf farm? Yeah, great question. So it all started getting a degree in horticulture. Um, I'll save you a little bit of the backstory how I actually ended up into horticulture, but through getting that degree, I realized I was really interested in fruit production um, and, and, you know, somewhat interested in vegetable production. So, you know, I really thought I was going to end up moving out west um, and maybe growing some small fruits. Um, or stopping in Colorado to grow something else on the way. But, you know, I um, actually had an internship fall through doing some strawberries in greenhouses. Um, and to get my degree, needed an internship. So I um, looked out and did an AmeriCorps service year, specifically working with Arkansas Garden Corps, um, which is unfortunately no longer around. Um, but I was one of the lucky few that got to, got to start a new farm. So I started a farm for nonprofit and Rogers and made like all the mistakes everybody makes uh, when they start a new farm. Um, fortunately enough for me, um, it was grant funded nonprofit. We started really, really small. Um, and those mistakes, you know, I was learning about them, but really nobody else was seeing them. So I was in a really like healthy environment to make those mistakes. And the great thing about it was that all the produce that I grew went into two soup kitchens and two food pantries. So um, I was providing pretty high quality produce compared to a lot of the stuff that, you know, um, a lot of the shelf stable stuff that we were giving out at the time. Since then, their healthy foods just really expanded. And I think a lot of that was part of the garden and like seeing how providing some of those vegetables to people in need who couldn't necessarily go to the farmer's market um, really started changing things. Um, so that was the first farm I started. Uh, some some around 2014, you know, and here we are with me going into my 11th growing season um, since finishing my degree at the university. So after starting the Samaritan Garden, which was about a half an acre of production space, I got to build a cool greenhouse, um, really cut my teeth on farming irrigation. I started 
um, work at a new startup called Farm Team, where we started Arkansas's first agrihood. So I helped design and build about a two and a half acre farm in downtown Bentonville. From there, dabbled a little bit in consulting, you know, helping all the way from Boys and Girls Clubs start a couple little raised bed gardens to people in their backyards or garages, things like that. A lot of people are interested in the hydroponic stuff that I was doing in my greenhouse at Samaritan. So after I helped start Red Barn, I briefly taught a little bit at Brightwater, helped teach their first applied farming class, um, and then was kind of scooped up by CAF. Funny enough, I was actually uh, jobless on vacation, which is a funny place to be, <laughs> and got an email from two different people uh, at the same time saying, hey, this is pretty cool. You should check it out. And so it was the farm and field educator position here at CAF. So 2020, January 2020, I started at CAF um, to kind of build two farms. Um, so a small scale uh, and then start, you know, coming up with an idea for the mid-scale and what that looked like for some of our tractor scale farming. Here we are almost four years later. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, uh, this is exactly why I wanted you on this, uh, for this series, because you've done it three different times, four different times. And, um, hopefully we can help kind of head off some of those mistakes that you've, you've made, I've made over the years and a lot of, a lot of other people made. It's not like, you know, it just us making one-off mistakes. It's everybody who makes these same, same mistakes. Yeah. A lot of iterations, um, a lot of tools purchased were not as useful as YouTube made them seem and, right. you know, wasted, wa wasted money that I, luckily I've gotten better at every time mm -hmm. since building this and, you know, still continue on the consulting thing every once in a while and just drops in my lap. Um, and always thinking about, how I would do it differently if it was my own farm. And so that is one of the perspectives that I've kept throughout the years is like, would I do this if it was just my own money? And so I think that's kept me balanced a little bit since all the farms that I've built have been with other people's money, whether that be grant funding or startup capital. Well, that's nice. Cause then if you're thinking about it as your own money, it really keeps you conservative on what you're buying and how you're spending that money and putting the money in the right places. So Jonathan, before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's conversation, what I've been doing with everyone else that's guest on the show is asking them, what does organic mean to you? So when you think about certified organic, what's the value of it? What does it mean to you personally? I think the value of it really comes from setting yourself apart from more conventional production practices. It lets you know and the people that you're providing produce to know that you're not only treating the produce with respect, um, you're treating with the earth with respect and trying to produce the healthiest vegetables and fruits that you can and, and doing so in a way that's not the easiest. It's not, you're not growing organic because it's the easiest way possible. Um, we're generally growing organic and utilizing organic practices because we feel that it's important and we really want to change that conventional aspect or approach to farming and how we grow a lot of our fruits and vegetables. So we're, we're doing what's right and setting ourselves apart from, from everybody else. Yeah. And hopefully adding more value to our, our overall product product. Very nice take to it. 
All right, so let's get into the series. So I thought over the next couple of times that you're on here, Jonathan, we talk a little bit about site selection and suitability, laying out and designing our fields, building infrastructure, and and definitely selecting equipment. So we won't get to all that today, but that's kind of where we're going over the next couple of episodes. So first up, Jonathan, can you, should you, just start farming a new site right off the bat. What's the value of taking some time to do some planning? Big part of taking the time and doing the planning is just making sure you think through all the processes. You, you think through <clears throat> how to get your weed seed bank under control. Um, hopefully you spend enough time observing the space so you know what happens when it, you know we get big heavy rains. You can kind of think through a little bit more about, you know, how to get utilities to a specific place. Planning really helps you stage things out. Most of us can't afford to put all the infrastructure in all at once. So really making a one to bring in water, how you're going to store produce and wash produce, and then how you're going to get it off the farm. I think those things really take time. Um, and the nice thing about organic farming is usually when we pick up a piece of land and we want to start farming it, um, a lot of us utilize silage sharps. So you can get silage sharps down as fast as possible. And then you kind of have a clock. So you kind of have a little bit of time to make decisions um, once you've picked that first area out. Uh, but it's really hard to break ground and start farming, you know, the same season. It's possible to do it in the same year, but I always, I've always said the the more money you have, the less time it takes, and the less less money you have, the more time it takes. So I want to go back because you've hit on quite a few different things there that I'd like to deep dive a little further into. So the first thing that you said, you're taking time to observe the space or observe the field. What specifically are you observing, or what are you looking for? Yeah, it's you know. Kind of counterintuitive, but if something's a little bit grown up, you know, it hasn't been hayed or the pasture hasn't been mowed recently, you can really take a, a look at like what perennial weeds you might have. Mm-hmm. You know, getting those mowed down and noting them is really important so you can know what's potentially going to pop up later. And then once once you kind of have an idea of what the land looks like uh, from a weed bank perspective, you can kind of start looking at slope, you know, hopefully you get a nice heavy rain before you put it down or something like that. So you can see like where your water runs, what drainage looks like, especially from an aspect of like, where is that water going to pool? Uh, do you have any low spots, things like that, you know, early on breaking ground, it's really nice to get a lot of those things taken care of. You're never going to know really what's out there, especially for low spots until you really have some time to see, you know, get some heavy rains and see what's going to be wet, what's going to be dry. Where do things grow well? Where are things not growing well? It's so important, you know, while you're doing that. Soil sampling's super important. Sometimes it takes a little longer than others to get that soil report back, especially from the state. Um, So, you know, it's keeping that, keeping that day job while you figure some of these things out can be super important as well, uh, because these the more time you can take, the better of a setup you're going to end up with, I think. You also talked a little bit about 
managing weeds and, and putting silage tarps down, you want to expand a little bit on what the value of managing weeds and silage tarps right up front from the get-go is? Yeah, well, it takes time to really get that weed bank into, you know, uh, manageable space. So the longer you can leave silage tarps down, I've always felt the better, I think, for, you know, a whole season. Um, and by that, I mean, like, a whole summer um, can be really, really beneficial. Um, I've found that you can go two ways about it, breaking ground and then tarping versus just mowing it really, really short and then tarping. I've done both. Most recently, I've just mowed really, really short because I already knew I had a fairly flat surface at CAF. There's been a lot of infrastructure improvements over you know the last 90 years. Things are fairly level and terraced. So I was coming into a spot here at CAF where um, the ground was pretty level and it had just been being mowed for a long period of time. So I knew there there weren't really a whole lot of noxious weeds, a whole lot of printing weeds that were going to pop up and be a problem. Um, so tarping right over um, extremely short mowed grass really set the um, set the tone, and that allowed me to focus on other projects like getting the irrigation in, getting all of the equipment that I need, and just getting freed up time to do other things. So if you aren't coming from a place where your land has been managed, um, like here at the Center for Arkansas Farms and Food, then it can be really important to maybe do some of that initial tillage and that leveling um, first, especially when you're thinking about small scale. It's really, really important that those beds are flat. Jonathan, one of the things that I always see when when people are getting started that first year or two out the door, if if they're not taking time to manage their weed seed bank and get the weeds down, that it ends up being kind of one of their biggest issues the first year or two out. Do you agree with that? Do you see the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. I can, you know, we're, we're pretty fortunate here at CAF to where I was starting from basically just Bermuda. Um, Bermuda is not the best weed to have, but if you know you're going into it, um, I've dealt with it for every year of my farming career. Um, what we didn't have was a lot of the perennial noxious weeds. Um, those things have been kind of nipped in the bud here at CAF being our, you know, part of the Division of our, the Division of Ag's research plots. And so uh, if you are starting with a more like pasture situation, you know, having that kind of knowledge, but, you know, when you work the soil, you're going to bring up weed seeds. So that, that initial kind of kill, like we, a lot of us use silage tarps, but, you know, even early on, I wouldn't be opposed to using some solarization if you thought you had some, some nastier weeds, just knowing that you'll have to kind of rebuild that life over that first couple of years. But it can be really, really beneficial to take that time, get those weeds into control. And then especially your first year, making sure you just don't let things go to seed. Um, it can be pain um, and a lot of labor. But yeah, taking that time, because if you don't, then you, have, you may be ending up with years of problems as opposed to just one or two years of problems. I, that's worth, worth uh, reiterating there, Jonathan, is or another way to say it is don't go too big your first year so that you can stay on top of your weeds. Yeah. I think that's why it's so important to like come up with that one, that first three years and really like stage it or stagger it out so that, you know, you're not biting off more than you can chew. You can always grow bigger 
but once you're really big, things things can get out of hand really quick. So one of the things I tell our students is, um, indeed, there will be time. It's it's really hard to build a farm overnight. So if someone has land or they're looking to buy some land, besides looking at just the, the surface location or reserving the space, what else do you look for when determining if a site is suitable for fruit or veggie production? Yeah, I mean, outside of, you know, some of the more obvious ones that we can probably get to later, like proximity to markets, um, things like that, it really slope matters. Like we have some nice rolling terrain here in Northwest Arkansas, um, but part of that comes with slopes that are too hard to deal with are going to take, you know, some excessive land management to get to a point to farm. So I think that, you know, happy medium with, you know, one to 3% slope or no more than one to 3% slope, a little bit of slope's nice because then you know where runoff's gonna go. So that's a first big one. Um, the next thing I do, um, I think Joe, you and I are the same here. You're probably a little bit better at it than I am actually. It's like hopping on a web soil survey and at least checking out what the soil type is. Um, looking at organic matter, looking at EC, things like that. There's a lot you can tell from web soil survey to give you, you know, whether or not this is going to be an attainable goal buying that piece of land farming on it. Rocks are in the soil. Web soil survey will at least give you some idea. That's probably my first big one. Put a link for a web yeah. soil survey in the show notes for everybody so that you can yeah. scope it out and take a look. It's a little clunky, but, you know, once you start using it and get used to it, it can be a very useful tool. So are rocks a deal or no deal for you if it's really rocky? I guess that comes down to what type of farming you want to do. Um, I uh, Rocks are kind of a deal breaker for me. I really don't like them. We've dug out a decent amount of rocks at CAF and we didn't have a lot to start with. Um, I've been fortunate in the few farms that I've started outside of Red Barn um, to not have a lot of rocks, but Red Barn, you know, still, well, they're probably six years in now. Um, they're still having some serious rock issues. Um, they've done a lot to uh, mitigate that, building up the soil, but being on a slope like they are in a rocky terrain, it's a challenge for sure. And so... They're, the rocks are really large. It's going to make everything you do harder and harder. It's going to make some crops not as uh, give the right opportunities to grow certain crops, thinking like carrots, especially, but any other of these root crops. But, you know, some rocks are manageable. If you're really small, digging them out right off the bat can be something, you know, as you're going through with a broad fork. I think there's some pretty famous YouTube farms that have, you know, all for the first couple of years, every time they got the broad fork out, they also got the shovel out. And when they hit a rock with the broad fork, they dug it out. But man, that is some hard work. And wow. so if you can mitigate that, um, we're going to be spending a lot of money on land if you're buying land in Northwest Arkansas, even if you're an hour or more out. And so just, you know, taking that time checking out web soil survey, but nothing beats, you know, actually going out there with a shovel and digging a few holes or taking, you know, soil probe. 
yeah. and really exploring the land. And if you go out there with a realtor, they might look at you funny, but <laughs> tell them like, look, I got to know what I'm buying. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it, it's a no deal. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> My last realtor was like, what are you doing? I'm like, just leave me alone. Just let me look and evaluate. Because yeah. at the ultimate day, I'm the one that's paying for it. So. Right. I'm going to walk around this property for an hour and I'm yeah. going to stick this probe in a lot. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm going to go talk to the <laughs> owner and get more info. And So rocks are not a can't farm deal, but they're definitely going to change how you farm. You're really probably going to be much more no-till if you're on a rocky site. Right. Absolutely. And really, no-till's not bad. I think it does increase that initial input cost quite a bit, you know, putting that layer of organic matter on top of the soil so that you have something to grow in and transplant into that's not super compacted or super rocky. But the good thing about rocky soils is they generally drain a little bit better. Yeah, so. yeah, you don't have a drainage <laughs> issue. And if you're not doing a ton of root crops. Right. They yeah. can be just fine. They'll, you know. So we talked a lot about soils and slopes and drainage on a site, even some a little bit about fertility. What do you think about proximity to your house or your shop? How close is the field to where you live and where your shop? How important is that to you? Great question, Joe. I think for somebody trying to be really profitable, I think it's pretty important that your field be fairly close to where you're bringing your produce and where you're storing your tools. Um, I go back and forth on how close I want my house to the farm. Sometimes I feel like if the house is right on the farm, you may be more prone to working more, but also like you're there if something goes wrong when, or when weather's bad, you're, you're a lot closer. One of the reasons why I might not put my house right next to everything is like, plastic flapping and the wind's loud, you know, just having a little bit of a disconnect to where maybe you're a, um, a couple minutes away. It's probably not the worst deal in the world. It can be, you know, there's a lot of utilities that you need for a house. So if you already have those there running them into a pack shed or something like that, it can be nice. Uh, it just depends on your land. You know, we don't have extreme weather conditions here to where you're like, you know, fighting feet of snow throughout the winter time. So it's not impossible to like access things. Um, but I do think that it's super important for the proximity of your pack shed um, and the proximity of your where you store your tools to where you farm and kind of making like a almost kind of think about it like a triangle to where you have road access, you have your farm, and then you have all the resources you need, um, whether that be a pack shed or a shed or a barn with a cooler in it. It's, but having that flow is really important. And so, and I think the, you know, in the farm, they talk a lot about like um, spaghetti diagrams. So like figuring out where you walk on your farm and starting to draw those things. I think that can be working that time to really map out one, where you want your beds or where you want your fill blocks, whatever you want to call them, but your growing space is the most important, right? It's going to be where you have the best soil, where you have the best drainage, um, where you have the best light, uh, things like that. And from there, you can figure out how you're going to access that, both getting you and maybe even employees to your farm site and then getting produce out of there. 
And then from there, I think that's when you start laying out where you want your buildings. At CAF, we use shipping containers. And I think even as a personal farm, I really like storing tools and equipment in a shipping container, especially like a lot of our hand tools and things like that. And the great thing about a shipping container is you can just put some chains on a tractor and kind of drag it around. It's probably not the best thing in the world for it, but you're using it for a tool container. So most of them are pretty watertight. So I think um, that's nice. And that can give you a little bit of flexibility in your first couple of years. So if you decide you don't want something or you want to put in a better road or improve um, drainage around, you know, um, a shipping container, um, that's nice. And then you can always build a lean-to on it for fairly, fairly affordably. So that's, I think it's really important to have those key elements where your house is. Um, I guess it hasn't impacted me that much, although having your house 45 minutes from a farm which is about where mine is right now from the calf farm does make it hard to go in and water on the weekends and things like that. Or open and close tunnels and things like that. <laughs> yeah. So definitely keep those things in mind. Like if you're, if you're not going to be able to live on site for the first couple of years, plan on what that looks like, especially if you're, you have a little bit of commute to your farm. Yeah, I think I've been zero miles, five miles, 30 miles, and 70 miles from my farm. And tell you what, the 70 miles, not happening again. 30 miles, not happening again. But yeah, five miles is a nice, happy medium because it does force you to just go home. Yeah, I think having a little bit of separation is not bad. Like if I had to, if I, I think if I like built that beautiful farmhouse, like right on the edge of my farm where I could see out the window and see things, it's like... I don't know. I think I'd be out there so much more. So that's why I kind of go back and forth on, would you ever feel like you're not at work? You really hit a comment about your focusing on your fields, your infrastructure, your tool storage, your post harvest, getting people in and out and, and really putting that focus there, which I think is really important to be thinking about how all that's going to lay out, how you're going to minimize your steps between all of that. And then I love having the the container and being able to put that container with your stool, tool storage right out in the field. That's one thing that's always bothered me is having to run back because I found out I found a blown line on an irrigation or I sheared a bolt on a tiller or something like that. And I need to run back all the way up to the shed, which adds so much time versus if I just have my, my primary tools I'm using every day out in the field right at the field and minimize those steps yeah it's pretty it's pretty incredible i i would like our shipping container at calf to be even closer to the field um so that it's you know even fewer steps for students you know because you're bound to forget something or need something that's not on you at the time mm -hmm. um our shipping container is only you know a few, couple hundred steps away from our most of our field um but i think i'd put that a little closer and if it was my uh, you know, one of the things we've looked into, and I've seen people like NeverSync doing this, especially for those people who are lower till and utilizing a lot more um, battery powered tools and equipment, you know, sticking a couple of solar panels and a cheap like battery so that you can keep those power tools topped off and keep that all out there. That's a pretty cool thing to do. And, you know, for uh, the initial investment may be a little high. But I think it's going to really pay off over time. And so 
that's you know another one of those things that the platform like a shipping container does. I like um, open air tool storage, but I do think it uh, nice closed in space will add to the longevity of a lot of your tools and equipment. Yeah, like being able to close it up, lock it up, and keep mice and critters out for like your drip tape and some of your power tools and tools and things that are just going to rust if they're outside too much. Right. And wooden handles just don't handle being outside as well. I think they last a lot longer and there's a lot less like uh, overall maintenance year to year. And just looking at, you know, you talked about moving your pet, that container up closer to the fields. It doesn't seem like that much one trip, but when you're making that trip multiple times a day and it really does start to add up on the amount of miles that you start to put on. I was a big proponent um, for us making sure we always had a gator. It was not a cheap purchase for even for a funded farm like ours, but like I was calculating how much time it took me, you know, but you know, about five to eight minutes to walk from the farthest point of our field and to go to the bathroom and having hourly employees and things like that. It's really important to think about, you know, that five to eight minute walk, you know, maybe even a little slower towards the end of the day adds up a lot. And then all of a sudden you're gone, you're away from the farm for half an hour, especially like I said, with hourly employees, um, that's something. So thinking about that proximity to like water and to a bathroom is important. You know, we don't necessarily have the luxury of dropping like a portable toilet on a trailer with a hand washing station. But, you know, if you're out in the middle of a field, those kind of little investments, especially if you're having, um, if you're paying workers to be on your farm, those things could be invaluable. Yeah, they really do add up. One of the things that I started doing, because my shed and, and stuff was not close to the field, having a, having a gator or having a golf cart, or even, even had just a wagon that was outfitted with like my primary tools and things that I could just mm -hmm. grab it and pull it out to the field with me when I started my day and then put it away at night. So just like basic tools and the most basic necessities that I would need at any given time is just right there. If I can't have that pack shed or not the pack shed, but the mm -hmm. container storage right out there. You know, having that little bit of kit can really save you. I don't know how many times that I've used my multi-tool in ways that I Definitely shouldn't have used my multi-tool, but it saved me a trip back to get this tool or that tool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. Now now they make Leathermans with like a specific point on them to hammer with. I can't tell you how many times I've used my Leatherman to just hammer something shut or open or something like that. And yeah, so I think other people have done that too. So mm -hmm. I really like having something like a multi-tool with me almost all the time. And I've, you know, I've had the one that I have now, I've built all the farms that I've built. It's been on my hip. I'm a crescent wrench guy. Like I can use that for tightening and adjusting irrigation and also mm -hmm. as a hammer. So <laughs> yeah, may not be the best for the tool. I think my, I have a blade on my multi-tool that doesn't quite open as easy as it should because of the hammering, but yep. uh, yeah, anyways. So there's a couple of things that we haven't talked about yet that you just alluded to a little bit. What do you look for when you're looking at uh, wind coming through the site, sun, or shading on on the fields? Yeah, you know, especially for fruiting crops, we, we need a lot of sun. So what is it? I, I always forget the, it's something like 14 or 17%, somewhere in there. 
of like how tall the tree is and that's how far it casts its shadow of the overall height um, in the middle of summer. And so, you know, keeping a good distance away from trees is really nice, you know, having some space, but like having those trees is a resource, uh, especially if they're, you know, southwest of you, um, having a nice buffer. I don't know. Wind really gets me. Uh, I'm going to be honest, like I'll work out in the rain, I'll work out in the snow, but man, if it's just that driving wind all day long, it just wears me down. I have to put, have to put music on or something like that. It just beats, beats you up. Mm -hmm. And so, um, having a site that's sheltered from wind is like the dream. Um, currently I don't have a site that's sheltered from any kind of wind at all. It's just a big 300 acre field that just the wind sweeps straight in from the south a lot of the times. So having that really adds to crop health, um, I think is the biggest thing, but it also just takes takes some of that wear and tear off of you as the farmer uh, when you're out in the field, because uh, that oppressive wind, just like running a weed eater all day long, just like that wind going past your ears can be, um, what's it, they call it like noise exhaustion or something along those yeah. lines. Um, yeah. So if you can, that's great. Unfortunately, I do feel like it's gotten windier in my farming career. I feel like this part of Arkansas is windier. Now, I don't really have a lot of like data to back that up. It's just kind of a feeling that I've gotten. But I've talked to a lot of people who have been here for a long time. And I think I think it it has gotten a little windier in my lifetime here in northwest Arkansas. But, you know, if you're going to be somewhere long term, I think there are some quick growing trees and shrub options to really help you reduce some of your wind. Because it can really help help um, reduce shock on transplants and things like that, especially if you're in a pretty windy zone. Like you were saying, you know, when you're asking about shade, clearly, sh clearly, shade's not great for for our vegetables and fruits, uh, but it's good for us. And so, having some of that space is nice. You know, not taking out all your trees and things like that, but definitely planning your farm around whatever constraints you have in your fields. But yeah, that, that is one thing I think, you know, at the cat farm that I would like a little bit more of is, you know, some nice big trees or windbreaks, especially on the southern portion of our farm, because it really does start whipping through there sometimes. And, you know, 20, 20 mile an hour winds not unheard of. It's not, it's not a big deal on our farm because we have to deal with it so much. So but it does really impact your physical, mental health and, and your plant health and your high right. health. And yeah. Yeah, we're lucky enough at this farm to where our high tunnels seem like they sit a little lower than the surrounding grounds because some, some of the terraces that were put in well before my time. Uh, and so I think that keeps some of our high tunnels a little bit more secure. Uh, but yeah, there's I've seen I've seen so many thousands of dollars of plastic ripped off of tunnels here on this farm, um, especially like the rain out structures that turf has. Um, so some high tunnels that are just there to keep rain off the grass that they're growing, um, those really catch the rain or catch the wind and they reskin those almost every year. And so if you're in a super windy area, think about how you're going to manage that plastic on those tunnels and make sure you're skinning at the right time so that that plastic is you know, as tight as it can be. So Jonathan, I think I have just a couple more questions here to wrap up because we're coming into an hour already here. 
what do you look for from a perspective of previous land use history? If there's anything that you might be looking at that would be kind of a red flag? Well, I think there's some of the more persistent herbicides that I would kind of be a little concerned about. Grazon seems to be one a lot of people talk about. I haven't had a lot of personal experience with it, but just knowing that previous history of, of the land, you know, if you're lucky enough to just get a piece of property that's just been brush hogged and not really a lot of attention paid to, um, that's probably the best case scenario. After that would be somebody who had a semi-managed pasture that they hate uh, and they didn't really spray much over glyphosate or something along those lines. Um, I think that would be, you know, pretty adequate, but just being careful of some of those more persistent herbicides um, and just, you know, asking in a really open way to the whoever you're buying the land from and just asking about the history. You know, it's really easy to, for lack of a better term, trigger people, especially when you're thinking about like organic and as as farmers who tend to lean more towards organic practices, it can become easy to be dogmatic. But I think keeping an open mind, um, knowing that, you know, even the worst treated land is can still be transitioned into organic um, just takes time and then you know under having a good understanding of what, what some of these more you know what herbicides can do to soil health and things like that so that you go in with a game plan on how to fix that and mitigate that and then you also really have to keep in mind if, if there's just you know a barbed wire fence between you and your neighbor what is your neighbor doing and so sometimes you know the previous landowner can have a lot of information that they can give you um, so you can get a, you know, a, a, as good of an understanding of the land as as possible. But yeah, definitely, definitely not being too dogmatic about what has been done to the land, because uh, I don't think there's anything that's, there's anything that we can't fix. It just, there are just, you know, it'll just take time. And you kind of hit right on the next question of, Okay, so now we have land. What do we need to start doing or keeping track of from records? And that's that is the history. You know what, whatever sides, what manure, what grazing has been done on the site. You can get a lot of that from previous owners, neighbors, things like that. Start building out that historical information. Yeah, just having you know, here's where we're starting. Being honest with yourself, and especially being honest with your certifier. Things are going to take time, um, especially, you know, being careful with what you use early on can really save time, too, because you put the wrong stuff out and you may have just added another year to your transition period. So keeping that starting records right off the bat with everything you do, even down to targeting, I think the more records that we keep, the more records that you start keeping right off the bat when there aren't a lot of things to track, um, the better your farm's going to be set up for the future for record keeping, you know, having that, hey, I put silage sharps out on this day and they were down for seven months before I took them off and then added compost from the city of Fayetteville or something along those lines. Like early on in the farm, there's very few things to track, but if you can just start keeping track of them as you, your farm grows, you're going to really add a lot of data points that you need to kind of be watching for. Uh, but having a good base when you're starting out is super important. So, Jonathan, I think that's about what I've got for today. Is there any final comments or thoughts that you want to share with our listeners today before we wrap up? Yeah, absolutely. You know, 
when you're starting a farm, there's a lot of things to learn and there's a lot of things to take into consideration. Um, so taking your time, remembering that, you know, you're, you're trying to start a farm, not to, you're trying to start a farm to grow for a long period of time. You know, really, we're not going to be putting in this much work and this much effort to something that's, you know, I'm only going to do this for a couple of years. So really taking that time, um, making sure you have your network making sure you're meeting other people who are growing what you're growing in your region. So you have that, like that backbone or that fellowship that you need. So becoming part of the community that you're growing in and selling to is really, really important. Um, it can save you a lot of time and effort. Um, just talking through farming with some other farmers in your region that have been doing it for a while. Um, and if you, you know, if you're really new to, um, farming, but you still really want to do it. There's great things out there. There's a lot of resources online. I think YouTube is pretty infinite with how much small-scale farming information it has, but hands-on experience. So whether that's working on a local farm for a little while while you're getting your farm started up, um, joining an apprenticeship program like we have at the Farms and Food, or if you really have the time and the you want to commit to a you know 11 month program coming through our program at the Center for Arkansas Farms and Food um, to really get that base knowledge built up. I think it can save several years of, of mistake making. And I think one of the biggest things for why people fail is they just they feel like they're the only ones experiencing these problems or the only ones with these struggles. You know, and maybe I as a farmer didn't go through that this year, but there's a really good chance I have before. So it's easy to also feel like you're in competition with every farmer around you. But I think in an area like ours that's growing so fast with so many possibilities, you know, a rising tide raises all this. So really like getting past that feeling of competition. So that would be a big, big suggestion I have for everybody. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for coming on the show today and talking about evaluating your site for weeds and flatness and slopes and drainage and designing or, you know, starting that conversation on designing for tools, equipment, fields, post-harvest access. So, um, and really, you know, starting the conversation of how do we minimize mistakes getting started? So. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. Next time we'll have you on, we'll talk about designing our beds and or designing our fields and establishing our beds out in the field. So that'll be our next conversation. Awesome. Really looking forward to it. I think uh, I think this is a fun series to do. Yeah, this so. is a lot of fun today. It was a yeah. good conversation. So I really appreciate you coming on and just hanging out for an hour. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, I'm looking for topic suggestions and guest hosts. Email me your suggestions at jhannon at uark.edu. This podcast was supported in part by the USDA Ag Marketing Service Transition to Organic Partnership Program and the University of Arkansas Division of Agriculture. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.